All right, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. A lamp into our feet and a light into our path. We thank you that it's all been given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that each and every one of us can be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, Lord, we just counted a tremendous blessing to sit at your feet and to hear your word. And so, um, please, um, particularly today as we read these chapters, help us to give it the regard that it deserves. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would, turn to Jeremiah chapter 36. And uh, a little bit of history, okay? So big picture, I like to go big picture to little picture. Everybody okay with that? Big picture, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created what? Heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, everything's great, right? Genesis chapter 3, Satan shows up, the fall of man. Genesis chapter 3, 15, verse 15, we see a promise of a... Starts with an M, ends in Asiah. Messiah. Messiah, right. Um, and we see then for the rest of the Old Testament history, we're going to trace uh, the line to that Messiah, Jesus Christ, through the Jewish people. And so we find ourselves uh, a few centuries later now um, studying the history of that Jewish people. The nation has divided in, in uh, two parts by this time, the northern kingdom of Israel uh, and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel, by the time we're talking about here today, has been uh, scattered by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom of Judah is about ready to be destroyed by the Babylonians. And Jeremiah has been warning everybody. All right? So you got that? We just went from creation to uh, 600 B.C. And so... Um, the last good king of the nation of Judah, um, you, you probably know by now, was Josiah. He had three sons, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Jehoiakim had a son that we'll read about briefly. His name was Jehoiachin. And uh, again, the reason that I, that I highlight these, uh, this kind of sequence, if you will, is a couple reasons. Number one, they all get kind of confusing. Um, and so I think if we just keep seeing it sort of repetitiously, it'll kind of stick in our brain a little bit. Josiah reigns, and then Jehoahaz reigns for three months. He gets deported by the Egyptians. Jehoiakim is put in place. Uh, he reigns for 11 years, and then uh, he's carried off to Babylon. His son, uh, Jehoiachin, is, I take that back, Jehoiakim, um, Anyway, is killed. We'll read about that. Uh, he reigns for 11 years. Jehoiachin is in place, uh, but only for three months. And then uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, replaces Jehoiachin with uh, Zedekiah, who's a puppet king that we'll read a lot about uh, today. But anyway, they don't always fall in, in sequential order. And so Jeremiah, uh, today he's going to talk uh, during a time of Jehoiakim in chapter 36. And then in chapter 37, uh, he's going to jump to Zedekiah. And I'll explain the reason for that. Um, do you see the son of Jehoiachin on this slide? No. Me neither. Uh, the line's going to stop after that, uh, at least for our purposes today. So everybody got that? 
That's uh, the last kings of the nation of Judah. Thanks, Earl. All right. So, Jeremiah chapter 36, we pick up. Um, uh, Jeremiah has been preaching to an unrepentant nation, uh, to a series of unrepentant kings, and he's going to continue to do that. Now, it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day that I spoke to you from the days of Josiah even to this day. So this is the fourth year of the reign of Jehoiakim, uh, the second of Josiah's sons. So this would, have put us at about, this would put us at about 605 B.C. Now you recall, we've, we've mentioned the last several weeks, uh, the Babylonians have, ca- have come in and sort of uh, picked off pieces of, of the nation of Judah. Uh, they'll do it in th- a total of three times. The first one is in 605 B.C., the second one's around 597, and then the final one is the end of the destruction of Judah in 586. And so this is around, this is the fourth year of Jehoiakim, uh, be about 605 B.C., the time of the first invasion. God wants Jeremiah to write everything down. Ever since he started speaking to Jeremiah during the reign of Josiah. So we're talking about uh, approximately by this time, uh, 20 years worth of, worth of words from the Lord, right? Now, if I told you, hey, write down everything the Lord showed you in the last 20 years, it'd be a little bit of a, well, it'd be a daunting task, right? It'd be a, it'd be a real job, okay? Um, and so that's what God is, is telling Jeremiah. I think we want to highlight from this chapter today, God wants his word preserved. God wants his word preserved. We're going to see that pretty dramatically here today. And then notice also just uh, in these verses, this is for um, against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations. God is a God of all the nations, not just the Jewish people. We know that. And God's, um, God's standard uh, applies to all nations, and God's solution, that is Jesus Christ, applies to all nations. And so we're covered by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, just as uh, any nation, and so God makes no distinction here at this point. He goes on, verse 3, It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. And so I want you to see this. God's heart for his people, including us, is always that we would repent and that we'd have fellowship with him. That's always the desire of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God has gone to great effort, great effort through the years to get his people to repent so that he can have fellowship uh, with them. And so it was the same then and it is now. Notice, do you get the idea, and sometimes we can kind of pick this apart a little bit, and it's always hard when we start to kind of get our heads inside the mind of God because God is infinitely beyond us, okay? We're going to acknowledge that. But he says here, it may be that the house of Judah will repent and that everyone will turn from his evil way and I can forgive him. Do you think God knows what they're going to do? Yeah, Yeah, for sure. God totally knows what they're going to do. So does it seem like God's kind of vacillating here? 
Well, I don't know that it does, and I just want to make the point, this doesn't take away at all from the sovereignty of God. God knows exactly the fact that they're not going to repent, but he chooses to give them the opportunity. This is amazingly gracious. This is, a, this is a great example of this sort of dynamic that we see of the sovereignty of God and the human responsibility. God gives us an opportunity to repent. God gives everybody an opportunity to repent. God gives everybody a way to salvation for God so loved who? The world. Everybody has opportunity. And so God doesn't take any of that away, but yet God knows that we need to make that choice, right? Somehow those two things go together in a way that's beyond our human understanding. So we just accept that. But I think there's also this idea. If we'd never had the opportunity, we'd think God's not fair, right? So if I say, you know, or if God says, I'll tell you what, uh, repent and get saved or don't repent and don't get saved. If God would just kind of snap, you know, he knew that we wouldn't repent, right, in his sovereignty. If he just snapped his finger and just kind of jumped to the finish line, right, and just condemned us or whatever, we would say, wait a minute, you never gave me a chance, <laughs> right? But if he gives the opportunity, then Romans chapter 1 tells us that all men are what? Without excuse, right? We're without excuse. And so what he's saying here, he's just setting this up. He said, I want you to write down all the words. I want you to give it to these people, and it may be that everyone will turn from his evil way and that I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, but God knows that they won't. So then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. And so Baruch wrote the scroll. These are all the words of the Lord. They're not Jeremiah's opinion. They're all the words of the Lord. And even as I stand here today, would you rather hear all the words of the Lord or would you rather hear my opinion? I got some pretty good jokes. Words of the Lord? Absolutely. That's why we're reading it. So, we're going to hear the words of the Lord of Jeremiah, or of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I'm confined, I cannot go into the house of the Lord. You go, therefore, and read from the scroll which you have written at my instruction, the words of the Lord in the hearing of the people in the Lord's house on the day of fasting. And you shall also read them in the hearing of all Judah who come from their cities. And so, you see the scene here. Jeremiah is not in prison at this point, but somehow he's been forbidden from going into the temple. Okay, we don't know the exact story on that at this point in the in Judah's history, but for some reason, Jeremiah says uh, that I cannot go into the house of the Lord. I'm confined. And so he's been restricted from that for some reason, probably just because they didn't want to hear uh, the truth. And I want to notice also, I want us to notice also, we'll read about here in the next couple of verses here, but we're talking about the day of fasting. We're talking about the day of fasting now, and uh, we're going to see here that the nation is in the midst of a sort of nationwide fast, okay? The nation is still very religious. The nation of Judah at this point in history that we're reading about is still very religious. They're all about their Jewish heritage. They're all about their Jewish law. They just happen to also be all about Molech and Baal and Asherah and everybody else. And they 
refuse to repent and follow basically the first of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so, um, and yet they're still religious. Is it possible to be religious and yet be far from God? Very. Very. Can I say this? Very. Can I encourage us as Bible Belt Hoosiers? Be careful. It's very easy to hide behind a veil of religion. It is very easy, and frankly, I think it's very common, to hide behind the veil of religion. There's an eternal difference between going to church, doing good, etc., and openly repenting to God for our sinful self and desiring a relationship with Him that can be found through Jesus Christ. There's an eternal difference. And there, you know, what does Jesus tell us in Matthew chapter 7? There's going to be a lot of people, there's going to be a lot of people one day that are blindsided by this, this very concept. He's going to say, many will come to me in that day and they'll say, hey, Lord, Lord, man upstairs, good father, papa, whatever they want to call him. And he's going to say, they're, they're going to say, hey, didn't we prophesy and didn't we cast out demons and didn't we do all kinds of cool religious stuff? And what's he going to say? I never what? I never knew you. I never knew you. It is very possible, and I believe very common, to hide behind the veil of religion. Don't do it. Don't do it. This, this life we call Christianity is a relationship with God. It's a relationship with God. It's not a bunch of hoops to jump through. Give me a break. Think about how much that downgrades God. Like, hey God, if I give a tithe, does that make you love me more? Right? I mean, again, you know, we can't get our heads inside the mind of God, but I would think that'd be offensive to him. So, don't hide behind the veil of religion. So apparently, and it says that, uh, you know, all, their, all Judah who come from their city, so apparently um, some would say that this was probably during one of the, one of the, one of the feast holidays. Um, they had three of those a year, and so therefore all of Judah was coming to the temple. So it would have been a very uh, sort of religiously outward time. So celebrating feast holidays doesn't get you to heaven either, right? Well, we celebrate Christmas and Easter. Does that make us Christians? Right? No. Keith Green famously once said, you've all heard this, right? Going to church doesn't make you a Christian anymore than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger, right? Yeah. You all heard that. Yeah. yeah, right. So, it may be, verse 7, that they will present their supplication before the Lord, and everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and the fury of the Lord that the Lord has pronounced against this people. And Baruch the son of Neriah did, according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading from the book the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. And so what we see here, we see the first reading. So Baruch uh, goes and he uh, reads the prophecies in the temple. 
it's interesting, these, these words are going to be read and discussed several times uh, just in this chapter alone. Uh, but Baruch is reading this because God wants restoration. Now it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, in the ninth month that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord to all the people in Jerusalem and to all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem. Then Baruch read from the, boards, the, from the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan the scribe, in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the hearing of all the people. So this is probably really just more detail of what we read in the previous couple verses. So he's saying, yep, during this time, the fifth month. So God spoke to Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Probably took him a year to write all these <laughs> 20 years prophecies. By the time Baruch comes into the temple, now it's now the fifth year. It's the ninth month. Uh, they've got a fast going on. And Baruch is reading from the temple in the chamber of this guy, Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the scribe. And so, um, interestingly, Gemariah, apparently the son of Shaphan, had the rights to a certain room, and so Baruch could read him. And it's, it's interesting, his father, Gemariah's father, Shaphan, anybody remember Shaphan? You don't remember Shaphan. Shaphan was the guy, the scribe, who read the book of the scroll of the Bible that Hilkiah found in the, old, in the temple during the time of Josiah. Remember that story? Just during the reign of Josiah, we said he was the last good king of, Israel, of Judah, right? And uh, the temple was in disrepair because that was a reflection of their, of their love for the Lord, really. And so Jer Josiah said, hey, I want to re rebuild the temple. I want to I repair the temple. And he, they raised up the money. He sent the repairman in. They go in, and this guy, Hilkiah the priest, finds a copy of a scroll of the Bible stuck in the corner, having been neglected for all these years. Like the whole nation had, like literally, like I hope that we're on it enough that, you know, if you walked in the room and you saw a little black book in the corner that said Holy Bible on the front of it, you wouldn't say, hey, what's that? Right? Can you imagine? Hey, what's that? Well, it's a Bible. <laughs> so these guys, during the reign of Josiah, they say, hey, what's that? Oh, it's a book. Well, anyway, long story short, they come and they bring it and they read it to Josiah. And there's great reform because Josiah repents. Right? Well, the guy that read that was this guy, Shaphan. And now we see his son involved here, Gemariah. Gemariah is the guy who has the chamber. Uh, that they're going to read it in. And so verse 11, when Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the book, I want to pause there for a second. I want us to not miss this subplot. Micaiah is the son of Gemariah. Gemariah is the son of Shaphan. You don't need to memorize those names. But what's the point? The point is this guy Shaphan appears to be a God-honoring man during the reign of Josiah, right? Now his grandson finds himself in the same position. He's going to be bringing the, bringing the book, bringing the word, right? And during this time in Judah's history, there's been tremendous moral decay. Does that speak to us today? It is possible 
it is possible, it is possible to maintain a godly heritage from one generation to another in the midst of moral decay. Why do we make a point about that? Because what's everybody say? That's what? Impossible. It's entirely possible. And parents, right? Parents, raise up those kids according to God's word. And it is possible to, to have a godly line, a godly multi-generational devotion to the Lord, even during times of moral decay. Each generation has its own free will, for sure. But this is a noteworthy heritage that we see passed on. So when Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from this book, he then went down to the king's house, into the scribe's chamber, and there all the princes were sitting. Elishama the scribe, Deliah the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan the son of Akbor, Gemariah the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah the son of Hananiah, and all the princes... That's not Zedekiah the king, by the way. Then Micaiah declared to them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the, read the book in the hearing of the people. So this guy Micaiah, he passes along to all these other guys the words that he just heard. He declares all the words to the princes and the leaders. Sounds kind of like the days of Josiah, doesn't it? When, you find, when you know, Hilkiah finds the scroll in the, in the corner of the temple right? And they bring it to a group of guys, and then they bring it to, you know, it's kind of like it's making its way, the, the, the word is marching its way up to the king. And that's what we see happening. It's a very parallel situation we see here. Therefore, verse 14, all the princes sent Jehudi, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Shalemiah, the son of Cushi, to Baruch, saying, take in your hand the scroll from which you have read in the hearing of the people, and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said to him, sit down now and read it in our hearing. So Baruch read it in their hearing. So this guy, Micaiah, he comes to, he says, you won't believe what I just heard. I just heard this guy, Baruch, read, this, read the, the Bible. And they're like, oh, okay, well, let's send for Baruch and let's hear it. Let's hear it firsthand. And so the leader's hearts here are, appear to be at least a little bit softened that they send for Baruch because they want to hear the original right? They heard Micaiah tell about him, but now they want to hear the original. So I want us to see that the scripture causes um, a response. The scripture always calls for a response, and we're going to see various responses. You know, we're hearing the scripture today, right? The scripture can bring conviction the Scripture can bring encouragement. Sometimes we can choose to step outside of that. Sometimes we can choose to say, I'm not going to let that affect me. And that's, we have free will to do that. But a sincere reading of the Scripture changes our lives. A sincere reading of the Scripture causes, changes, causes change in our lives. And it should. And it's always fascinating, as you read through the Scripture to see how do various people respond to the simple reading of the Scripture. So, verse 16, now it happened when they had heard all the words, these are the kind of the leaders, that they looked in fear from one to another. And they said to Baruch, 
We will surely tell the king of all these words. And they asked Baruch, saying, Tell us now, how did you write all these words at his instruction? So Baruch answered them, He proclaimed with his mouth all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Then the princess said to Baruch, Go and hide, you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. And so, interestingly, the princes recognize that this is a danger now to Baruch and Jeremiah, right? The king might not respond well to this. It's okay to be cautious. They tell, him to go, they tell <coughs> Baruch and Jeremiah to go hide. But notice that they're a little bit sensitized now to the Scripture. They hear the Scripture, and they say, Oh my goodness, we've been warned that bad stuff is going to happen, and we need to repent. And notice also, as we've said many times before, everything that Jeremiah has said thus far is consistent with the Bible that they had, right? So you've got to keep in mind... Everything we're reading is past tense from Genesis to Jeremiah. It's past tense for us. But in their day, Jeremiah was present tense. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy was past tense. And so they would have had, for example, Deuteronomy as their past tense. And lo and behold, Deuteronomy said, if you trade in your worship of God, your devotion of God for, you know, these other idols, these bad things are going to happen. Well, then compare that with present tense and the words of Jeremiah, their contemporary, who says, yeah, these things are happening. You know, God told us that if we did this, then this would happen. Now we see, sure enough, this happening. And at the same time, this guy Jeremiah says, we're going to see more of it over the next 20 years, right? That should cause us to repent. That should cause us to repent. Now, here's the problem. Everything I said was just completely logical, right? As is most everything I say. <laughs> completely logical. But what about the heart? What about the heart? Okay? The heart dramatically influences our logic. We'll read about that more as we go along. But keep in mind, logic is not always logic. You notice that? And again, I mentioned this, I think, last week. It's, a, it's on my heart lately because we've been reading through the Bible in a year. Okay, we just read through uh, the 10 plagues in Egypt, right? Let me ask you this. How many more data points, how many more logical data points would Pharaoh have needed to say, oh, now I get it, right? There's no number of more logical data points that Pharaoh could have been given, right? He was given all of them. And yet he still refused to believe the logic. And so uh, sometimes we get confused because we think, well, this is totally logical. Why don't they get it? It's because of the heart. It's because of the heart. It's because of the heart. And so these guys, the, the sort of the princes, the leaders, they've got uh, some softening of their heart towards these words. And so these words can pierce their heart a little bit. And they say, ooh, we need to take this to the king. And so they went to the king, into the court, but they stored the scroll into the cham- in the chamber of Elishama the scribe and told all the words in the hearing of the king. So they just gave the king kind of a verbal, right? So the king sent Jehudi, he says, I want to hear these words, sent Jehudi to bring the scroll, and he took it from Elishama the scribe's cha- scribe chamber, and Jehudi read it in the hearing of the, kings, in the king and in the hearing of all the princes who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with the fire burning in the hearth before him. 
And it happened when Jehudi had read three or four columns that the king cut it with a scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. So I want you to notice this. Jehoiakim, the king, hears these words of scripture and they caused a reaction in him as well. And he cuts them up and throws them in the fire. You don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to read briefly 2 Chronicles chapter 34, starting in verse 19. During the days of Josiah, when this sort of parallel situation happened before, again, for background, you know, they find the book, they bring it, you know, comes up, finally makes it to the king. And then verse 19, thus it happened when the king heard the words of the law, did he cut it up and throw it in the fire? No. That he tore his clothes. And then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Asiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So Josiah had scripture read to him. He totally repented for himself and for the nation. Jehoiakim hears the words of the Lord. He cuts them up and throws them in the fire, right? Not the exact same words, but you get the idea. The words of the, words of the Lord, the words that we would now call collectively Scripture, and that was the response he had. And I think we see this today. We see attempts to remove God's Word from our daily life, right? We see attempts socially, politically, you know, we're always hearing about the Ten Commandments being taken down from some public building, right? And there's a great, there's, there's always been great pressure, and we should find it as nothing new, but there's always been great pressure to remove the Word of God or to cast doubt on the Word of God. You've heard me say before, the very first sentence out of Satan's mouth recorded in the Scripture was, did God really say that you shouldn't do that? Satan himself, from the beginning of time, wants to cast doubt on God's Word. The spiritual forces of, of evil in heavenly places, to this day, want to remove God's Word from our consciousness. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Here's what we should be surprised by and disturbed by. The church. The church has a tendency to remove the scripture from our consciousness and trade, in, trade, trade it in exchange for it. Cute stories, parables, life lessons, psychology, politics, whatever, right? And I'm trying hard not to be critical, but the reality is we've got to be a people that stand on the word of God only. Amen. Only. And we see this pattern, the same in Jehoiakim as very much in our daily life today. The Word of God has been downgraded in the church. It's something that we sort of speak from, 
It's, we know it's there. We, we know we have a regard for it. And yet, it's not kind of our primary text. It's kind of our secondary text. And our primary text is something else. And, you know, whatever seems cool for today. Whatever fills, whatever fills seats, right? And we've got to be super, super, super careful about this. I mean, honestly, I won't ask for a show of hands. Most of us been to church, right? Do we, do we hear sermons on Jeremiah very often? <laughs> right? Right? Job? Right? Stuff like that? Right? I mean, why? Because I stand up here and, you know, it's, I mean, honestly, I like Jeremiah. Okay, don't get me wrong. I love Jeremiah, right? But when I was going through Job, right, in my mind, why did I teach Job? Because I made a commitment to the Lord and to myself and to all of you that I would teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse, right? And Job, that was work, right? That's honest. Is that fair? That's just honest. You know, it sure be a lot more fun to, you know, blow some dry ice and have a light show and do something cool and hip and make you all say, wow. Instead, we'll teach Job. Right? Right? You get it? There's, an, there's, a, there's, an, there's, a, there's a subtle yet powerful move to remove the Scripture from the forefront. And we need to recognize it for what it is and call it out and kick it out. Right? So, don't be, Je- don't be Jehoiakim and throw the word in the fire. First Peter Chapter 1, verse 24, quotes Isaiah, saying, All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord, what? Endures forever. Here's the cool thing. You can take down the Ten Commandments from public square all you want, but the word of the Lord does what? Endures forever. Endures forever. So we can take comfort in that. Verse 26, he moves on. He says, uh, I'm sorry, verse 24 moves on. Yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king, nor any of his servants who heard all these words. <clears throat> Nevertheless, Elnathan, Deliah, and Gemariah implored the king not to burn the scroll, but he would not listen to him. So there's a few guys that said, don't do that. That's not cool. And there were other guys around him that were like, yeah, whatever. And they didn't find any conviction um, from them. And the king commanded Jeremiah, the king's son, Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet, but the Lord hid them. So again, they tried to go after those guys, uh, but the Lord protected them because God is in control. God is always in control. Verse 27, now after the king had burned the scroll with the words which Baruch had written at the, at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Take yet another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, burned. Are you kidding me? Right? So I set you up earlier. I said, if you're going to write everything that the Lord told you over the last 20 years, we, would, we agreed that that would be a daunting task. Yeah. Right? I didn't tell you we are going to do it twice. Right? You go back and do it again, that's a, 
more daunting task. And even more so, it feels a little bit futile. Like, seriously, are we going to get results here? Right? Because we're results-minded. Right? Can I just encourage us? Sometimes our work for the Lord, our faithfulness to the Lord, is not about the results. It's about the process. It's not about the results. It's about the process. And the process here is faithfulness. What God desires from us is faithfulness. And so, Jeremiah, yep, he's going to write another long, difficult process to produce another scroll. But he'll do it. He'll do it because he's faithful. And you shall say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, thus says the Lord, by the way, this is the word for Jehoiakim, you burned this scroll saying, why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause man and beast to cease from here? I'm sorry, why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will come and destroy this land and cause man and beast to cease from here? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out into the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will punish him, his family, and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring on them and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and on the men of Judah all the doom that I have pronounced against them, but they did not heed. So check this out. So what happens because Jehoiakim threw that, threw that Bible in the fire? Well, he can't escape the responsibility of his actions. Right. He can't escape the responsibility of his actions. You know, Pontius Pilate said, I'm going to wash my hands. Yeah. Did he wash his hands? Yeah. Well, his hands are clean, but that's about it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We cannot escape our responsibilities that are given to us. If you follow the Lord faithfully, you're going to find yourself in a situation where you feel like, man, if I go this way, I don't like it. If I go this way, I don't like it, right? That's just the reality. We'll find ourselves in those situations. We cannot, that's called responsibility, and we can't escape it. And we've got to make those decisions according to what does God want me to do? And then do it, and let him work out the details. But in this case, Jehoiakim, he's going to be responsible for his actions, and uh, the reality is he's cursed. None of his descendants will sit on the throne. Now, we saw at the slide at the beginning, right, his son Jehoiachin, uh, also called Jeconiah or Coniah in the scripture, um, Jehoiachin, his son, reigned for how long? Three months, and then he was booted, right? And interestingly, um, that's sort of the end of that line as we see in Jeremiah. Now, this may be more than you care to know about, but that line picks back up in Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy of Jesus. Now you say, wait a minute. God says here that Jehoiakim is not going to have a descendant on the throne. The whole point we're talking about is tracing the line to the Messiah, right? Well, Matthew chapter 1 is sort of the political lineage of Jesus Christ because it takes it down to Joseph. Was Joseph the physical father of Jesus Christ? No. No. So Matthew chapter 1 goes through the political lineage, if you will, through Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and all of that, right? And sure enough, down to, to Joseph. But Luke's genealogy goes through the physical line of Jesus, and it takes a different turn. Okay? So anyway, that may be more than you wanted to hear. I won't ask for a vote if that was more than you wanted to hear or not. I wouldn't 
stand to bear it. Uh, but anyway, Jehoiakim gets cursed. Okay. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it all, at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And besides, there were added to them many similar words. Catch this? Jehoiakim tries to burn the scroll, tries to destroy the word of God, tries to remove the word of God from uh, the public square. Jeremiah goes back, gives the dictation to Baruch again, this time, there are many more words added to it, right? Did Jehoiakim's efforts work? No, no. Those efforts never work. They're never, the, the effort to destroy God's word is always to no avail sooner or later. Chapter 37. Now, now King Zedekiah, okay, so this is why I showed you the slide at the beginning. We're now jumping, okay? We jumped from uh, Jehoiakim, 605 B.C. Now we're at Zedekiah during the time, around the time of the Babylonian siege. So we're talking about approximately 20 years later. Why does, why does Jeremiah skip like that? Here's why. Now King Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, reigned what? Instead of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah. And so I believe the scripture here is, the, the point he's making is, now Zedekiah reigns instead of, uh, Jehoiakim's brother now is reigning instead of Jehoiakim's son because of the curse we just read about in chapter 36. And so now we move forward to the time of Zedekiah, and he's reigning there. Nebuchadnezzar put him on the throne, so he's going to be a puppet king. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land gave heed to the words of the Lord, which he spoke by Jeremiah the prophet, by the prophet Jeremiah. So here we are 20 years later, right? In chapter 36, Jeremiah had been prophesying for 20 years. Now we've got another 20 years. We've got 40 years so far of faithfulness, faithful reports of Jeremiah, faithful prophecy, faithful to the Lord, despite basically no results. If we were going to give this guy a grade in ministry in 2022, Jeremiah, we'd give him a what? F. F. We'd give him an F in ministry, Right? How effective is this guy, right? Right? You're going to have him come be your conference speaker, Jeremiah, right? And you print on the bulletin. You ever seen those? You ever read those bullet like those, the brochure at the conference, right? Well, like I always laugh. I always, uh, John Corson talked about this one time. I, I always got a kick out of it. He's like, if you want a conference speaker, Jonah's your man, right? So you put on the back of the, of the pamphlet, you know, Jonah opened his mouth in the city of Nineveh, the whole city converted, right? Jonah's your man. Jeremiah, uh, 40 years and no results, right? Put in the pages of Scripture. You want to be Jonah? You want to be Jeremiah? Jeremiah? Jeremiah, for sure, for sure. And so the results that we measure aren't always the results that God measures. So anyway, this guy Zedekiah, he's on the throne. He's not repentant. Um, and notice also, he says here, but neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land gave heed to the words. So Zedekiah, not only is he unrepentant, but he's now surrounding himself uh, with unrepentant people. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20 says, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be what? Destroyed. The companion of fools will be destroyed. Verse 3, and Zedekiah the king sent Jehuchal, the son of Shalemiah, 
and Zephaniah, the son of Maaseiah, the priest, to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Pray now to the Lord for us. Pray now, I'm sorry, pray now to the Lord our God for us. So this would appear, this, uh, historians say this was during the siege, most likely. And during the siege of Jerusalem, of Jerusalem, there was a brief break in the siege. We talked about this a little bit last week, where uh, the folks from Judah were kind of seeking help from Egypt. And maybe it looked like the Egyptians were coming up to help a little bit. And the Babylonians that were surrounding Jerusalem, they kind of left their, their post there for a minute to go back to the south now and deal with Egypt. And so now that there was a break in the siege, maybe God's maybe circumstances are overriding the Word of God. Because we think circumstances override the Word of God, right? And so Zedekiah is now like, hey, I know what Jeremiah's been saying for the last 40 years, but I think, and I know that everything he said for the last 40 years is consistent with everything else that we know from the Bible, but I think I'm looking out over the, over the wall, and it looks like those guys are headed off to Egypt, and I think maybe this is answer prayer. Do we do this? So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to send for Jeremiah and say, now would be a good time to pray for to the Lord our God, Right? pretty presumptuous for Zedekiah to call him our God. So, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. So, you know, I'm sorry, I skipped a verse. Now Jeremiah was coming and going among the people, for they had not yet put him in prison. Then Pharaoh's army came up from Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news of them, they departed from Jerusalem. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians, just don't get confused there. And so they're kind of, hey, what's going on here? They're leaving, they're going to, Judah, or to Egypt. And then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Okay, you want to know what's going on? You want, me, you want, to pray, you want us to pray to the Lord our God? Here's what he says. Thus, shall you, thus you shall say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come up to help you, will return to Egypt, to their own land. So you think they're coming up to help, but they're going to return. And the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they'll come back, and they'll fight against this city and take it. And not only they'll take it, they will burn it with fire little emphatic there on, uh, on his part. They will burn it with fire. So the message is the same. Circumstances haven't changed the Word of God. Circumstances have not changed the Word of God. Verse 9. Thus says the Lord, Do not deceive yourselves, saying the Chaldeans will surely depart from us, for they will not depart. So, do not deceive yourselves. Can I tell you, deception is another thing we need to look square in the eye. Okay? We need to look square in the eye, the removal of the Word of God from our consciousness, or the effort to do that. We need to also look square in the eye, deception. Where does deception come from? Well, number one, for sure, it comes from uh, Satan. Remember, Satan deceived Eve in the garden, right? He's the father of lies. If I lie to you, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to deceive you. I'm trying to get you to believe something that is wrong. That's called deception. And Satan is the father of lies. But I think more, so we can say, yep, um, okay, I get that. But can I tell you another one that I think is just so huge? From Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Don't forget this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Don't follow your 
heart. I don't care what Disney says. I don't care what Walt, I don't care what, what psychology says. Don't follow your heart. It's deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And I can't tell you how many times I see this play out. I've seen it play out in my own life. I've seen it play out in others, right? We'll say, this is the classic. You know, I've got a real peace about um, this thing that I'm, this decision I'm making. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. Right? That's kind of a, see if we kind of put it in a Christian package, it sounds like wisdom. You know, I've got a real peace about living this life of sin. Must be the Lord. I know it's contrary to his word, but, you know, that's old-fashioned. i got a peace about this. What is the heart? It's deceitful, and it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Everything, everything must go through the filter of Scripture. Everything must go through the filter of Scripture. Be careful, please. Be careful. Be careful. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves, saying, the Chaldeans are going to depart. What do they need? They need to repent. They don't need to, they don't need to look to Egypt. Babylon's not their enemy. Their own sinfulness is their enemy. Egypt is not their help. If it was a political, we talked about this last week, if it was a political battle, Egypt would be a reasonable assistant, right? But their battle is spiritual, so repentance is their only answer. He says, for though you had defeated the whole army of the Chaldeans who fight against you, and there remained only wounded men among them, they would rise up, every man in his tent, and burn the city with fire. So even if you only had half a dozen Babylonians out there, and they were all wounded, they'd still thump you. They'd still burn your city. Why? Because you're fighting against the judgment of God. And it happened when the army of the Chaldeans left the siege of Jerusalem for fear of Pharaoh's army, that Jeremiah went out of Jerusalem to go into the land of Benjamin to claim his property there among the people. Now this is a little bit ironic. It's, I wouldn't say it's funny, but it's, it's almost, okay? So we read a few weeks ago, God told Jeremiah to buy a piece of property, right? I think a couple weeks ago. He bought some real estate in, in a place called Anathoth, right? And um, we went through all that. So anyway, now this time, you know, Jeremiah bought it while he was in prison, okay? So he never saw it. But so now it looks like there's a break in the siege. Jeremiah's like, you know, I think I'm going to go look at that piece of real estate I bought. That's reasonable, right? I mean, if you're going to buy something sight unseen, you ought to at least, like, maybe go look at it first chance you get, right? So he goes and he's going to look at his, at his real estate. What do you think is going to happen? And when, the, the, and when he was in the gate of Benjamin, he's on his way out, a captain of the guard was there whose name was Erijah, the son of Shalemiah, the son of Hananiah. And he sees Jeremiah the prophet saying, you're defecting to the Chaldeans. Then Jeremiah said, false, I'm not defecting to the Chaldeans, but he didn't listen to him. So Erijah seized Jeremiah and brought him to the princes. Therefore, the princes were angry with Jeremiah, and they struck him and put him in the prison of the house of Jonathan the scribe, for they had made that the prison. Don't you hate that? Jeremiah gets spotted leaving him Jerusalem, so he gets arrested. And, you know, sometimes we can be at the wrong place at the wrong time, right? Has that ever happened? And here's another, I think, take-home message for us. We as Christians have a huge problem with injustice, especially when it's 
being delivered to us, right? Jeremiah's doing nothing wrong. He's just going to look at a piece of real estate that God told him to buy. It's not unreasonable. And he winds up in prison. Is that fair? No, that's not fair. And we as Christians, even today, I find that when, when, we, when we feel like there's some injustice being done in the world, we really bristle. If it's being done to us, we really bristle, right? How many people in the Scripture, rock-solid, God-honoring people, have had injustice done to them, right? So I go through, in my mind, and this is just a, in my mind, I'm just kind of like doing this, right? I, without a serious study, Abel was the first one, right? Just offering a gift, offering a sacrifice to God that God respected, and got killed for it, right? Joseph, 20-year-long yeah. ordeal, right? Gets sent off to prison, was, was falsely accused several times, on and on and on and on. Poor Joseph. I think of Joseph, you know, he's been he's sold, sold to slavery by his brothers. He winds up being falsely accused. He winds up in prison. He interprets the, the dream of the butler and the baker right? The baker gets killed. The butler gets restored. He says, hey, by the way, can you remember me when you go to, you remember me? I was the one that correctly interpreted your dreams. Literally, as he's on his way out the door, and the guy didn't remember. Joseph sits there in prison two more years. Would you be tempted to be bitter? Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Joseph, David, chased by Saul for probably 10 years, unjustly. Jeremiah, yeah. Jesus, Paul, all the apostles, right? So if injustice is done to us, why should we feel like we deserve any different treatment than any of these people were dealt, right? Now, ultimately, God is a God of justice. Ultimately, God is a God of justice, but we may not see it in our time or in the way we want. So just keep that in mind. So when Jeremiah entered the dungeon in the cells, and Jeremiah had remained there many days, then Zedekiah the king sent and took him out. The king asked him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from the Lord? Like, have you changed your mind? Really? And Jeremiah said, there, I, I see this, in, our, I see this in, our, in human nature today. Don't you see this? Right? You know, I'm still living this life of sin. Like, think God's okay with it now? Maybe the circumstances are a little different. Jeremiah said, oh yeah, there's a word. There's a word from the Lord, sure enough. You shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. Wow, that guy's relentless. Same question, same answer, right? If we are people of integrity, we'll have the same answer, right? I think of Balaam, right? King of Moab sends uh, princes to Balaam, said, hey, I want you to come curse God's people. What do you think, God? Nope. Nope, can't do it. King of Moab, what's he do? Sends more pomp, more circumstance, and more cash. Says, hey, why don't you come curse God's, curse God's people? What do you think, God? I didn't hear him say no, so I'm out of here right? Balaam changed his mind according to the circumstances. All the while, well, that's a complicated story, <laughs> right? 
The point is, integrity, Jeremiah doesn't change his answer, regardless of the circumstances. Moreover, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, Hey, by the way, what offense have I committed against you, against your servants, or against this people that you've put me in prison? It's okay to ask, by the way. Don't be surprised if we're treated unjustly, but it's okay to ask. Where now are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying the king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land? Because, you know, false prophets have been saying this all along. Therefore, please hear now, O my lord the king, please let my petition be accepted before you, and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe, lest I die there. So it's okay to ask. You know, Joseph asked the butler to remember him. It's okay for Jeremiah to ask the king to go easy on him. Then Zedekiah the king commanded that they should commit Jeremiah to the court of the prison, and they should give him daily a piece of bread from the Baker Street until all the bread in the city was gone. Thus Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. So the king treated Jeremiah graciously. I personally believe that even as wicked and as spineless as this king was, there's deep in his heart, he couldn't help but have some degree of respect for Jeremiah. So even at this point, he's kind of like a little bit gracious to Jeremiah. And we see that kind of throughout here as we, in the next few chapters as well. So, Jeremiah is a great example of a faithful man of integrity. Integrity remains integrity regardless of the circumstance. Integrity remains integrity regardless of the circumstance. And trust me when I say, oh, it's easy for me to say that up here. And it's easy for us to say, yep, that's right. But when push comes to shove and integrity has a cost, it doesn't matter what that cost is, it's worth it. Integrity remains integrity regardless of circumstances. Notice Jehoiakim and Zedekiah are great examples of politicians who try to maneuver for a situation, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. My brain keeps going back to this. I've mentioned this a, a few weeks ago. Sometimes when we act, we make decisions, we walk through life, you know, we all, you know, we make a million decisions a day, right? We do things, we think things, we... You know, we operate, we navigate, we interact with others and, and all of that. And so often, I, the way I kind of think of this, I think there's three different ways we can kind of navigate. Number one, what would be best for me? Right? I want um, a cup of coffee. I want the kind of coffee that I like. I want it when I want it, which is now. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to get my cup of coffee. You all know exactly what I'm saying, right? When you want a cup of coffee, I mean, choose your drug. Whenever you want a cup of coffee, uh, you want it your way and your time, right? And you're going to, I don't know about you, I'm pretty effective at getting that job done, right? So sometimes we act that way. Sometimes we act according to what we think should happen. What would be the best way to handle this situation? I would submit that that's probably better as a general pattern of life than what do I want. It's like, what do I want? What do I think should happen? But then there's even a better way, and that is, what does God think should happen? 
Jeremiah was a man who looked to God. He had a short, he had a short circuit straight to God, it seems, right? It's like he was always hearing from the Lord. He was always attentive to the Lord. I'd be fascinating to know what Jeremiah's devotional day was like. But I bet it was powerful. Jeremiah was a guy who was able to hear from the Lord. That doesn't just happen because you wake up and say, Lord, I want to hear from you. That happens as a part of a disciplined, faithful life over a period of decades. That's how Jeremiah went through this life. And as a result, when he's faced with a decision like, how do I answer Zedekiah? I don't know about you. If Zedekiah comes to me and says, hey, has God changed his mind? I might, you know, there'd be something, be a huge temptation to me to, to soften it up a little bit, right? Say something other than, yeah, you'll be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, right? I would, I would want to soften it up a little bit. Jeremiah just wants to declare what God is saying. And so we can do what we want. We can do what we might think in our great wisdom is correct. But there's a much better way, and that is to do what God wants us to do day by day, moment by moment, birthed out of a life of faithful devotion to Him and the fellowship that we have with Him that we can enjoy and that we can, you know, when the Word of God comes our way, we don't have to worry about throwing it in the fire. If we need conviction, we need conviction. If we need surgery from it, we need surgery. Whatever it wants to do, let the Word of God speak to our hearts. Let the Holy Spirit empower us to live accordingly. And we'll find ourselves on the Jeremiah side and not on the Jehoiakim Zedekiah side. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these examples that you've given us. Lord, what a faithful man. Jeremiah never, never wavered, it seems. And uh, yet he was a man just like us. And uh, had a nature just like ours. And I'm sure had temptations just like we have. And yet he remained faithful. And so, Lord, we thank you that it's possible to be faithful during the times of such moral decay as Jeremiah saw. And we take that as encouragement for today. And we pray, Lord, that you would just cause us to have a keen ear to your voice. Cause us to have a, a keen appreciation for your word. And help us to live accordingly in a way that would bring glory and honor to you and to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.